Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. We continue our discussion of death and beyond. Uh, we were still busy with the first uh, set of slides. Uh, last week, we allowed for some questions uh, by the grace of Allah. So we're going to continue with that, with that set of slides. And uh, if time allows, we'll then go over to the next session and uh, Allah knows best. <clears throat> Tonight, uh, we are discussing the adab or akhlaq, the etiquettes that follow uh, death. So first and foremost, the ulama, the scholars of Islam, they tell us that it is desirable that we close the eyes of the deceased upon their demise. So that the appearance of the deceased can remain pleasant and does not become unsightly. So the reason for that is that as the soul is pulled, the eyes gaze upon the angel of death and it gazes upon the soul exiting the body. And then there's a moment where there's no longer control over the eyes. And so the eyes go into a fixed stare. And that fixed stare is a thing that uh, it causes other humans discomfort when they look upon that. So what we do is we gently put our hands on the eyelids of the deceased and then we close the eyes. In the hadith, it is narrated in Sahih Muslim hadith number 920, Ummu Salama, radiallahu anha, she reports that the messenger of Allah entered the quarters, the house of Abu Salama, who was passing away. And the Prophet ﷺ then noticed that his eyes had a fixed stare, and so the Prophet ﷺ closed it. And then he said that the sight follows the soul as it is reaped. So as the soul is taken by the angels of death from the body, the eyes follow the soul. And there's a point, as I said, where the soul is exited, so control over the body goes, and then the eyes remain uh, in this permanent state. It is also considered good at the time of closing the eyes to say the following. And this is mentioned at a number of times uh, at the Janazah. This is one of the places. So we say, Bismillahi, in the name of Allah, meaning I'm closing this person's eyes in the name of Allah. Wa ala millati Rasulillah, and in accordance with the millah, the custom of the messenger of Allah. So this is the sunnah. This is the sunnah. So in the name of Allah, I'm closing this person's eyes and I'm doing this in accordance with the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Another thing that happens is that the jawbone, it relaxes. So when the jawbone relaxes, it opens the mouth and uh, there's a possibility that you could have a gaping mouth. Again, this is very unpleasant uh, to the sight and to relatives. It's a reality of death. But when people see these things, it fills them uh, with unnecessary fear, to understand. And we do want to allow, especially the close relatives, to make ziyara of the deceased. And we want the, 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 the sight of the deceased to be something uh, that is pleasurable. So what we will do is we will tie a broad band of cloth around the jawbone and the head, as some people do when they have a toothache uh, and, and the like. Understand? So from under the chin, the, the, the band will go and go on the side of the head, over the head, and maybe a bit of a knot. So you can make the knot on the top, you can make the knot perhaps under the neck, especially if a person has a beard, then the beard perhaps can hide uh, the knot, right? And the consideration is the same as before. We don't want the person to appear unsightly. 
It is also desirable prior to ghusl to loosen the limbs of the deceased to facilitate funeral preparations. So that's obviously, obviously is when rigor mortis has not fully set in. And it has been noticed by those that do this regularly and by the ulama that if a person was a person that was regular with salah, then the limbs, it, it, it remains facile, it remains movable longer post-death. Right, so this is my hand. We'll just take it and we'll move uh, every joint like that. When I say to make sure that things stay loose, when I say you'll do the same thing with the arm, you'll do the same thing with the leg. Just be careful that you do not expose any aura. And if you meet any resistance, then do not force. Then do not force. Because it is possible that you, you might break a bone. And uh, it is mentioned uh, in the hadith that uh, anything you do to the deceased while they are dead, it is similar had it been done when they were alive. You understand? It doesn't necessarily mean that the dead experiences pain when you do that. You understand? But uh, the gravity of it and the disrespect uh, of it is similar to when the person is alive. You understand? So if he is performing the hustle of the deceased, for example, that person has to treat the body as if the person is alive, but there are obvious differences and uh, Allah knows best. So either way, we left the forearm up to the shoulder and back to its normal position. We left the lower leg up to the thigh and back to its normal position. We left the upper legs to the stomach and back to the normal position. And making sure that we do not uncover aura at any given moment in time. The fingers and toes are also moved about and it is folded to loosen the joints. And as I said, this is because following rigor mortis, it becomes difficult to move the body during funeral preparations, such as the ghusl, which is the bath. Right? So when we do this, it keeps the body, uh, what you call it, uh, open to movement and uh, so forth. It is also best to place the mayat on a platform that is raised from the floor. Because it has been observed that when the body is placed on the, on, on the ground, that the body decomposes quicker. Right? So in today's time, uh, the masajid, uh, they have a thing in Cape Town, we call it cattle. You understand? The same cattle uh, is, 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 is the thing in which the deceased uh, will be washed as well. So it's a metal structure with legs uh, and wheels, you understand? And uh, it normally has a decline and then there's a hole. So the head part will be on the raised portion of that thing and the feet will be at the lower portion. So as we are performing the ghusl and we are throwing water, you understand? And there's a possibility that najasa can exit the body also. So since there is a decline, the water and the najasa will flow in that direction. And then there will be a hole. And below the hole, we will place a bucket. You understand? And then any, any najasa and also the water that we use for the ghusl, it will flow through that hole uh, into the bucket. And then it can be removed. It is also desirable to have the mayit face the qibla, as is done with the muhtadar the person that is on the verge of death, right? So over there, we had the person lie on their right-hand side facing the Qibla. And we said, if that cannot be done, then we have the person lie on their back, but we put the cushion under the head, and then we have the head face the Qibla. And this is what is actually best uh, when it is time for Ghusl or before that. So we have the, uh, the, the, the soles of the feet facing the Qibla, and the way we put a cushion or any raised object, uh, the tukamandis, this is the term in Cape Town for the ghasil, 
The two commandis have a, have a professional block that has a U-shape in the middle, uh, sometimes made of uh, plastic, you understand? And they fit the head or the neck of the deceased in there, and then that raises the neck. So it makes it easier for us uh, to wash the deceased, and uh, it makes it easier also to have the, uh, the face uh, facing the Qibla. One should also remove his clothing by taking caution to keep the aura covered so as to prepare the disease for washing and to protect the clothing also from harm. At the end of the day, there is a value to the clothing. It is something that can still be used uh, by a living person. So as much as is possible, we will try to preserve the clothing. In certain cases, however, we sit with severe rigor mortis and uh, for a shirt, sometimes it is extremely difficult to remove it, especially when we have limited people that are washing. So in that particular case, the hassle will actually go ahead and he will use a scissor and he will cut the clothing uh, of the deceased. But if it is possible to preserve the clothing, where that can be passed on to a needy human being and they can take the benefit, you understand, and reward can continue to go to the deceased and the family of the deceased, and that is Ola, that is a thing that we uh, prefer. And just on a side note, uh, it is mentioned in the hadith that when the Sahaba, when they watched the Prophet of Allah, that they had so much respect and mahaba. Mahaba translates as reverence. It's a type of a respectful fear. They had so much mahaba, so much reverence for the Prophet of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that they actually never removed his clothing. They actually washed the body of the Prophet of Allah while they kept his clothing. So they poured water onto the clothing and it went underneath. You understand? And uh, like that, the Prophet was washed. Uh, and on that, Aisha al-Anna actually said, and that's the issue we're going to be mentioning further on. Aisha al-Anna said, had I known that that is how they would wash the Prophet of Allah, then perhaps I and the other wives of the Prophet of Allah, we would have performed this ghusl ourselves. So this introduces the masala that is it permissible for a husband or wife to wash their, their spouse? And the clear-cut answer is that yes, it is permissible. Fatima Anha, this is the daughter of the Prophet of Allah, she was washed by her husband Ali bin Abi Talib, anhu, may Allah be pleased with him. As for Abu Bakr, the first Khalifa of Islam, he was washed by his wife. So the Shafi mother clearly states, there's no problem in a spouse washing their spouse. You understand? It's just that they, they are not the preferred individuals. Uh, there's a line of preferred individuals. I will be discussing that. And the wife or husband uh, only falls further down. But there's an obvious question that comes about over there. Isn't it that with death, the marriage ends? So if the marriage ends with death, how come you got the right uh, to wash that individual? So in the Shafi Malab, the ulama answer that, and then they say, yes, it is true that the marriage ends with death. You understand to be taken up again in Jannah, inshallah. But the husband or wife, they register as a type of a mahram. They register as a type of mahram. So the wife washing her husband is almost like the brother or the sister, you understand, uh, washing uh, the husband. You understand? And in the line of people that are allowed to do that, those people eventually come. You understand? So they are not considered the preferred individuals, but it is permissible uh, for them to do so, and uh, Allah knows best. <clears throat> the body of the deceased should then be covered with a light cover, like a sheet of linen. 
Right, so here, this is a quick reminder that your every sheet of linen is made of white or another color like that. So if it gets wet, it tends to become see-through. So what we do is that area that is major aura. You understand? If you're going to put a, a thin sheet of linen, area that is major aura, over there, we put, we put the, 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 the sheet folded double. You understand? Or we put another sheet over that so that if it does get wet, it does not become see-through and the aura is not exposed. Uh, the reason that the cover should be light is that if you, if you place, like for example, a blanket, in that blanket, it will heat up the body. You understand? And the process of decomposition will be accelerated. So you must understand that when a person passes away, the process of decomposition, it is starting. You understand? It is starting. But initially, it's at a very slow pace. If you do anything that heats the body, it will accelerate uh, decomposition and uh, Allah knows best. Either way, this is based upon the narration of Aisha al-Anha, who is the wife of the Prophet of Allah. And uh, she said that the Prophet, peace be upon him, when he passed away, he was covered entirely with a hibara garment. With a hibara garment. So that hadith comes in Bukhari. Uh, at the bottom, you see it's written there, a hibara garment is one made of cotton or linen that was adorned with lines or markings, right? So from that, the ulama have understood that it should be uh, something light uh, that the deceased is covered with. Number eight, the next etiquette when somebody has passed away. So it is desirable, mustahab, who are recommended to hasten to settle the debts of the deceased and thereby relieve him or her of their financial obligations. So here the Prophet of Allah said, the hadith comes in Tirmini ibn Umajah, that the soul of a person is suspended by their debts until it is paid. You understand? So this doesn't mean that the soul is punished, but rather that the soul will be taken to account for their, for, for their debt. And they will not be allowed the full position of honor until the debt is settled. To say this in a different way, uh, the full experience of delight, the pre-Jannah state, you understand? Uh, they will not be allowed uh, to fully experience that until the debt is settled. You understand? Either way, before they enter into Jannah, the debt will have to be settled. So uh, if the executor of the estate or other family members, they can attend to that as soon as possible. And that is a thing that will bring the relief to the deceased. It's, it's one worry less, you understand? And it will allow them to experience more uh, the goodness that Allah has in store for them. It is, however, compulsory to settle all debts. I, I'm first going to read this, but there's something I have to explain, right? So let's first read it. It's, however, compulsory to settle all debts after washing. Kafan. So washing is ghusl. Kafan is shrouding. Salah and burial. Yet prior to the vision, the division of the wasiyah, which is a bequest and the mirath inheritance, right? So this is something that we're going to be discussing uh, further on. So I just want to briefly say, uh, there's the Hanafi approach and there's the Shafi approach. So the Hanafi approach is slightly simpler. Uh, in the Hanafi approach, uh, the deceased must first pay. So when we say deceased, we mean the estate of the deceased. Anything that the deceased leaves behind, it has monetary value. So the deceased must first pay via the estate. Monies must be used to pay for the janazah, right? So we must pay for the ghusl, we must pay for the kafan, 
the salah and the burial if there's any fees attached. You understand? So with the ghusl, there's normally a fee. With the kafan, there's a fee. With the burial, uh, there's a fee. Yeah? The salah is the imam of the masjid or uh, anybody else. They, they are preferred individuals in Allah knows this. There's normally no cost uh, attached to that. Uh, it is a salah. You understand? So first, the deceased pays for their own funeral. Right? The exception is a married woman as her husband is required to pay and not her estate. It's part and parcel of the nafaka uh, upon the husband. And in the other exception is a minor child. So whether male or female, the father of that child will pay for the janazah of the child. However, the, 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 the law is that everybody else must pay for their own janazah. In Cape Town, it is not unusual that uh, family members put money together and then they pay all these expenses. You understand there's nothing wrong with that. It is not sinful. It is a good thing, mashallah. Uh, it is just that uh, when it comes to duty, it is a duty attached to the estate that they must pay for their own janazah. So firstly, janazah is paid. When janazah is finished, we must settle all the debts of the deceased. So this is in accordance with the note. Following that, any wasiyah bequest that the deceased has made, and there's details to that which I, which I will need to discuss, uh, I will just mention two quickly. Uh, a wasiya is, is, is a post-mortem uh, gift. You understand? It is a gift that you're going to be giving somebody after you pass away. Right? So there are there, there, some conditions to the wasiya. Condition number one is that your entire wasiyas, all the bequests that you make, it must not exceed one-third of the entire estate. It must not exceed one-third of the entire estate because we don't want to affect the A's too negatively. And the Prophet has mentioned in the same hadith. Secondly, you are not allowed to make wasiyah to somebody that is already inheriting. So your son is always going to be inheriting from you unless they did something wrong that binds them. Same with your daughter, same with your mother, same with your father, same with your husband or wife. So you cannot then make a wasiyah for them because they're already going to be inheriting. If you do this, you will positively affect uh, the inheritance and we are not allowed to positively or negatively affect the inheritance of anyone. Right, so the wasiyah must not be more than a third of the entire estate. And number two, there's no wasiyah uh, for an A. And then finally, we will be settling the mirath, the inheritance. This is the Hanafi view. So the Hanafi view has four things. First, we pay for the janazah. Uh, then we pay for any debts that the deceased might have. And uh, then we pay the wasiyah, any bequests that the deceased might have made. And then finally, we settle the inheritance. Uh, and the inheritance, the details of that, mostly in the Quran, but some details coming in hadith. You understand? And we'll be having a look at that, uh, inshallah. Now, this is according to the Hanafi Madhab. Four. In the Shafi Madhab, the, 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 the duties that apply to the estate are five. So the Shafi Madhab differentiates between debts that is connected to physical items of the estate and debts that are uh, owed by the deceased, but it's not connected to any particular item of the estate. So in the Shafi Madhab, debts that are connected to particular items of the estate, that is a thing that monies must be put aside for it prior to even paying the janazah. You understand? This is even more important than the janazah in the Shafi Madhab. So if, for example, uh, uh, the deceased made a, a, a debt, you understand? They entered into a loan agreement with somebody, and then that person required a security. 
then that security is connected to, 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 to that debt. So you're not able to have that security released. So we cannot go to, 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 to the person that asked for the security and say, we need the security so that we can pay for the janazah of the deceased. No. Uh, that person's uh, loan is connected to that item. You understand? So the estate must cover whatever monies are owed so that that item can be released. They cannot demand uh, that. Understand? So monies must first be put aside for that. Uh, if there's only monies for that, and after that there's no monies in the estate for the janaza, uh, then people who would have been responsible for the deceased had he been alive or she been alive, then it is a duty of those people to pay for the janaza. So let's say, for example, I, I pass away, but I have something in mortgage, you understand? It cannot be released until it is paid. So now my entire estate is taken up by that. So who will pay for my janaza? So an example of that is that my sons, my sons will pay for my janaza. You understand? Had I been a, a young man, perhaps my, my father will have paid for my janaza and uh, Allah knows best. So in the Shafi Madhab, first debts, uh, 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 that is connected to items of the deceased, then the janaza, then other debts, then wasiya, request, and only then mirath. And just by the way, in the Shafi Madhab, zakat falls in category number one. So even before we pay for the janaza, we must put monies aside to pay for the zakat of the deceased. On that issue, I noticed that there was a question that uh, let's say uh, our relative passed away, right? So part and parcel of the inheritance is supposed to be a house. However, there are debts that the deceased uh, has. Are we supposed to sell the house and pay the debts? Or do we as the family have the right to cover uh, the debts? Uh, so in principle, uh, if nobody wants to pay the debt of the deceased, you understand? Uh, and this is the default also. The default is that the debt is against the estate. So whosoever is the executor of the estate, that person has to now sell the house to understand to cover the debt, all right? Uh, if however other people want to settle the debt and they want to do so majan and free, you understand where they know they're not going to get anything in exchange for that, then they may go ahead and they may go do so, you understand? Uh, but, but however, if they want to pay the debts, and then they want to say, well, now the house is ours. You understand? The house is ours. And that is a thing that will have to be discussed uh, with the heirs. You understand? Because there are those are things that can produce a uh, big conflict. You understand? Why is it that you are claiming the house? This was my father's house. You understand? So before you get to that particular point, you understand, have the executor first indicate to all the relative parties, meaning, meaning children, husband or wife, you understand, parents, every executor indicate to them uh, that your relative was passed, these are the debts of your relative, you understand? And this only a house, you understand? So in order to cover the debts, we have to sell the house. Or if one of you want to buy the house and then we can use that money to cover the debts, then we can do that. If you as a family want to assume the responsibility of the debt, you understand, and then the house is yours, you understand? As long as you cover it and you make arrangement for whoever the debts were owed to, you understand? And khalas, that is also not a problem. You understand? The golden question, however, will be, who is the new owner of the house? So you can have a scenario where a person covers the debt. Let's assume the debt is 2 million rand 
and the value of the house is also two million rand. So now the person covers the debt and they have it as a niya that they want to take the house. You understand? And but now other is they say no, you cannot take the house. That's our father's house. It's part and parcel of our inheritance. So before you proceed to that point, first produce clarity. First produce clarity with the rest of the is. You understand? And ask them. You understand that, that, that yes, this was your father's estate, the house. But your father's debts it is equivalent, uh, equal uh, to that. And either the house will have to be sold, you understand, to cover those debts. Or, for example, I as a relative, I will cover the debts in exchange for the house. You understand? Or, uh, uh, what is it? I will buy the house, you understand, so it doesn't go out of the family, and I will cover the debts. The golden question is, how is it done? And is it done with clarity, you understand, to avoid dispute? Unfortunately, when it comes to inheritance, uh, there always tends to be some type of a conflict or the other. You understand? So the more transparent we can be in any steps that we take, uh, the better the final outcome, uh, inshallah. At the end of the day, what inheritance represents to people is free money. You understand? Free money. And sometimes the money that we are speaking about can be millions of rents. So to have uh, a few million rents slip through your fingers, you don't fully understand why. You understand? That is a thing that can create a uh, great conflict. You understand? So it is very important that there, that there is uh, transparency, that people know exactly what is happening with the estate, and then after that, people can make suggestions. You understand? People can make suggestions, and we can hear what the heirs have to say. And yeah, I just need you to understand that when the disease passes away, and all the debts uh, and the wasiya has been covered, what remains is the property uh, of the relatives. It is the property of the relatives. So it can't be going anywhere without their consent. It cannot be going anywhere without their consent, right? So a number of people, and they will all now be co-owners uh, in what is left, right? If there's just debt and the deceased has, uh, the deceased has no property that we can call an estate, then there's no owners on the relatives to pay the debt. You understand? It, obviously, it will be a good thing that they do so to assist the deceased, but there will be no owners upon them. If, however, the deceased has a debt, and the deceased has an estate, things that have monetary value, then the A's need to understand that they cannot access those things that have monetary value until the debt is covered. Because the inheritance comes only after payments of debt. You understand? So they will first have to ensure that those debts are covered before we can speak of inheritance, right? So I'm just going to give the sequence again. In the madam, first we pay for the janaza, then we pay debts, then we pay wasia, bequests, and finally inheritance. In the Shafi school, first debts that are connected to objects that form part and parcel of the estate, such as zakat, and uh, such as uh, security that was placed by somebody in, uh, uh, when, uh, for a debt, right? Uh, secondly, we pay for the janaza. Thirdly, we pay for other debts. Fourthly, we pay wasiya. And then finally, uh, we, we divide the estate amongst the heirs. And Allah knows best. Number nine, here is a general law, and here there are some exceptions. The people who are present after the demise of the deceased, they should speak only good in the presence of the deceased. And preferably, they must occupy themselves in the making of dua on his behalf. So dunya discussions and all of those things, uh, we must stay away from that as much as we possibly can do so. 
So we had the Hadith of Musalama where the Prophet entered the quarters of Musalama, noticed that his eyes had a fixed day. The Prophet closed the eyes and he said that the sight follows the soul as it is reaped. So that's Hadith I mentioned before. I didn't give the whole Hadith, however. But in a sense, the Hadith continues and it says, one of the members of his family then let out a cry when they saw the Prophet closing the eyes. You understand? So the Messenger of Allah said, stick to the making of good to us. Stick to the making of good to us. As the angels say, Amin, may it be so, to whatever you say. And then the Prophet made the dua, and this is a Sunnah dua. Uh, I really actually find people making this dua, even ulama, uh, at the janazah. You understand? But it's one of the most authentic duas to be made for the deceased. We actually mention the name of the deceased in the dua. And that actually, I, 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 I've very rarely seen it done. So the Prophet said, Allahumma ghfir li Abi Salamata. Oh Allah, forgive Abu Salama. And just on a side point, why do we use the, the, the verb ghafara yaghfiru to mean forgiveness? So inside the word ghafara yaghfiru is actually to cover up and hide. This is the reason why a yawmat in the Arabic language is known as mirfar. A yawmat is known as a mirfar. So we don't want Allah to only forgive us for our sins. Allah must cover up the sins. As if, as if it never happened. So on the day of Qiyamah, it mustn't be mentioned in the presence of my parents. It mustn't be mentioned in the presence of my children and other people. You understand? They must never hear the shameless deeds that I had committed uh, during my life. You understand? So one of the benefits of Tawbah and Allah forgiving me is that not only does Allah forgive me, Allah hides it away as if it wasn't, as if it, it never happened. Like it comes in the hadith, you repent his sins is like one that had not uh, committed any sin. So, oh Allah, forgive Abu Salama, darajatahu, and raise his rank fil amongst the guided. So, hadayahdi to guide, the, the person that guides you is the hadi, and the person that is guided is the mahdi. And just on that point, there's no such thing as Imam Mahdi. Eh? The term Imam Mahdi is a term by, by the Shia. They believe in 12 Imams, and the 12th Imam is Imam Mahdi. By us, the person's title is Al-Mahdi, while his name is Muhammad, the son of Abdullah. You understand? But there's no such thing as Imam Mahdi. There's such a thing as the Mahdi. You understand? His name is Muhammad, the son of Abdullah, just like the Prophet of Allah. So raise his rank amongst the guided. fi aqibihi fil ghabirina, and take care of his family left behind. Right? Because his family now they had the support. You understand? Like he might have been the father or husband of the household. You understand? So he was the one providing for the family. You understand? Or it might be the mother that was the caregiver of the family. And this can just continue like that. There was a certain value attached to them. And that value has now gone lost uh, in their demise. So oh Allah, uh, take care of the family. You understand? In the demise of that person. And forgive us and forgive the deceased. Oh Lord, of the worlds, all things that exist. And widen his cover for him. And place nur in it for him. So we're going to be discussing further on that if a person is a sinner or a disbeliever, the walls of the grave, it will come towards one another and then it will crush his ribs to such a degree that the ribs of the right-hand side will go right through the ribs of the left-hand side. You understand? And the walls will meet. While if the person is a pious person, and the walls of the copper will move away until eventually the walls will not be seen. 
So the experience of the deceased will be as if they are lying in a field, maybe amongst the grass. You understand? And uh, they will be experiencing this wide expense. You understand? And there will be no constriction that they will suffer. And there's some other beautiful things over there. There's a special lesson with regards to that. So we will do that over there, inshallah. Imam Nawi, rahimahullah, he tells us in his 20-volume kitab on fiqh, he only wrote nine uh, volumes. Abu Ulama completed the kitab. However, uh, the kitab is 20 volumes, very detailed. And this is in volume five. So this is Imam Nawi. So Imam Nawi tells us, it is permitted for the relatives of the deceased and his friends to kiss his, family, to kiss his face as this is established in a number of hadith or prophetic traditions. So in Cape Town, this is known as ziyarah, uh, the final visitation of the deceased. Notice it is permitted for the relatives, it is permitted for friends. Yeah, in Cape Town, when it comes to the point of ziyarah, things just go crazy. You understand? They allow everybody to ziyarah the deceased, every Tom, Dick, and Harry. You understand? Non-Muslims come into the house, they want to see also what the deceased looks like. You understand? Uh, members of the opposite gender that are not mahram. You understand? Uh, they come and they kiss the deceased uh, on the face, etc. You understand? For them to look and for them to make a dua, no problem with that. You understand? But uh, the person is not your mahram, and so there shouldn't be any skin-to-skin uh, -skin contact. You understand? Uh, as for non-Muslims, you understand? It's not wrong for them to have a look. You understand? But if you're going to be making dua, who are they going to be making dua to? Are they going to be making dua to Jesus? If they are making dua to Jesus or anybody else other than Allah, then we have just allowed shirk uh, to be done in our house. You understand? We have allowed shirk to be done in the presence of the deceased. You understand? And at the very least, that is going to remove the barakah. Yes, if it never came to your mind and you allowed it, you never knew also what they were doing. You just saw them standing there muttering. You understand? You didn't know what it is that they were muttering then inshallah, uh, you, you, you're not responsible. It never came to your mind. But you need to understand that it is the way of people that when they visit deceased, that they will offer a prayer. And this is exactly how they call it, offer a prayer. You understand? If they ask you to offer a prayer, you must tell them, if you want to pray, pray to God alone. And uh, this is the way sometimes of the non-Muslims. You understand? They want to insert the kufr and shirk. You understand? Uh, uh, at certain moments. Like I was in the hospital two and a half to three weeks in the hospital, actually busy dying. And I was just resting and then I heard a noise. I opened my eyes and there were five Christians standing around me. Three, four uh, men and about two uh, ladies. So they asked me, uh, may we pray for you? So there's a goodness in that gesture. You understand? But there's the problem that, that this is the devil's final opportunity now, you understand, to, 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 to mislead you. So I responded and said, yes, you may pray for me on condition that you only call out to God. You understand? Whatever you say in your prayer, just say God. You understand? And they said, so you mean that I'm not allowed to say Jesus when I pray for you? So I said, yes, exactly. That's what I mean. Don't call out unto Jesus. Call out only to God. Then they got upset and they left. So it was clear to me that the aim, the aim wasn't my benefit. The aim was not to pray, to make a prayer that, that it would be my benefit. This is, this is the reason why they did not accept my condition. Uh, what was happening over there is that this was the final opportunity to perhaps turn me into a Christian. At the very least, to get me to abandon uh, my Islamic faith. Uh, either way, by the grace of Allah, 
uh, Allah provided the fuel. And uh, you see me tonight, Alhamdulillah, by the grace of Allah, uh, conducting election. You understand? But uh, these things are happening. And uh, we must do our best, inshallah, to do things in the right way. Number four, signs of a good death. Now, we can never truly say what is the condition of a human being. You understand? Because only Allah knows who the pious people are. Only Allah knows who the ulama are. Like one day a man came to me and he asked me, I know this person that graduated from that Darulum. Is he an alim? So I said, Allahu Akbar, I don't even know if I'm an alim. You understand? How can I know that person is an alim? Only Allah knows his ulama. You understand? Only Allah knows his ulama. But if somebody graduated from a madrasa and he has a certificate, then according to the teachers of that madrasa, they have certified him. You understand? So what is apparent is that he is. If perhaps in his conduct, he's not living up to that, you understand? Oh, he's passing fatawa. That is not research. It's based upon ignorance. You understand? So that is a weakness in him. You understand? That is a weakness in him. And uh, it is in the hands of Allah. You are not required to ask him questions. You are not required to, to, to listen to what he has to say. Uh, if they are elders or there's a body of ulama, you understand it might be better that you turn uh, to them. But uh, I personally will not enter into this discussion of who's an alim and who's not an alim. Those are things only Allah knows. Allah knows who's ulama. Allah knows who's awliya. Allah knows who the pious people are. However, we the Muslimin, we make tafa'ul. We take good omens. The Prophet of Allah taught us that we Muslims are the people of good omens. We are not the people of bad omens. You understand? So tafa'ul or fa'al, the taking of good omens, it is our way. And when you take good omens, it causes you to take action. It causes you to do good things. When you take bad omens, it causes you to desist from action. So that is the opposite of vitality. And that is the opposite of progress. So the Prophet Islam, he warned us uh, against that. So yes, we take good omen. So one of the questions also that was put last week is, if I dream of the deceased, can I be certain that it is the deceased that came to me and spoke to me? So the answer is, you cannot be certain. You understand? There cannot be a keen that that is actually the deceased that came to you and that the, the deceased spoke to you. However, we take the fa'ul, we take fa'al, we take good omen. You understand? So we tell ourselves, inshallah, that is the disease that came to me. And this disease has informed me now, you understand, of the goodness that they had experienced. And so ulama have no problem. They have no problem quoting a hadith of this, uh, not a mafat, a hadith. They have no problem quoting stories, uh, kisos, of deceased appearing in dreams to people and saying good things. And frequently there's a moral lesson. Like sometimes we know somebody that ostensibly, superficially, this person was a great sinner. And now somebody dreams, like a pious person dreams of the deceased, and they see the deceased in a good condition. And so automatically they ask the question, how is it that you're in, in a good condition? When in the dunya we, we noticed uh, that you were addicted to methamphetamine stuck, you understand, or, or you're a drug dealer, or you drink hammer, or this or that. And then the deceased says, yes, I am guilty of all of those things, and I was very fearful. But I also performed this one action. And due to this one action, Allah has forgiven me my sins. So it's very similar to the hadith where the Prophet spoke of that prostitute of Banu Israel, who when she came to the well, she found a dog dying of thirst. You understand? And then she gave the dog to drink, and then Allah forgave her all her sins. So all of those things are possible. And when we, we, we experience a dream like that, 
we take a good omen from that. But we cannot say with conviction, we cannot say with conviction that Allah has forgiven this person and that this is the state of the person. We say, we say so tafa'ulan, on the basis of good omen. You understand? So whatever I'm about to say, signs of a good death, you understand? We say this with the hope that it is so and based upon the ahadith that, uh, that are, are going to be quoted. But only Allah knows the true condition uh, of a person. Because the variables of a person's life, the good and the bad, and the, the weighing up of all the good as opposed to all the bad, there's no human that is able to do, to do that. There's no human that knows that. Only Allah knows it. You understand? And only Allah knows the value of a good deed and the negative value of a bad deed. And, and, and whether one particular good deed has the power to wipe away all the negative things that a person has done. Only Allah knows that. And only Allah has the right uh, to do that. You understand? So these are signs, and it creates a certain probability by the grace of Allah, via tafa'ul, via the taking of good omens. Right? So no bad omens in Islam, only good omens. So the black cat, I don't exactly know how the black cat thing works, but no bad luck. The leather thing, no bad luck. Spilled salt, no bad luck. We did are the Muslimin. We do not believe in the concept uh, of bad luck or, or, or bad omens. We only believe in the concept of tafa'ul, taking good omens. So for example, number one, if the final statement of the disease was la ilaha illallah, there's no being worthy of worship, but Allah, we will say that this person is going to Jannah, inshallah. But we do not praise anyone to Allah. Allah knows who is who and Allah knows where they go. But the Prophet of Allah did teach us, he said, he whose final statement is la ilaha illallah will surely enter Jannah. As far as we know, this was the person's final statement. So we believe in what the Prophet said, that the person surely will enter Jannah, inshallah. Now there's always a possibility that the person said something else, some, something they muttered or they whispered under their breath. All of those possibilities exist. You understand? Uh, so we do not say this with conviction. You understand? We say this, tafa'ulan, having good hope. Also the Prophet Allah said, if they sweat on the brow of the person at the time of fasting, and that is the way of the true believer. You understand? So the true believer passes with a bit of sweat uh, on their brow. Uh, the sakarat, the death throes, it is a difficult thing. And there's a burden on the body. You understand? There's a certain discomfort burden on the body. With the true believer, that burden is expressed via some sweat on the brow. Uh, all the hadith, I'm giving you the references. It's coming in the notes. And uh, Allah knows best, so you can take benefit from that. Also, if the person died on the night of Jumu'ah, so in Islam, we're using the lunar calendar. So since we're using the lunar calendar, the night always precedes the day. You understand? In the solar calendar, the day precedes the night. But in the, in the, in the Muslim calendar, the night precedes the day. So actually, Jumu'ah night is the night before, meaning Thursday night after Maghrib. You understand? So if the person died on the night of Jumu'ah or they died on the day of Jumu'ah, the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, no Muslim dies on the day of Jummah or the night of Jummah, except that Allah will protect him from the trials of the grave. And this is one of the evidences that there will be adab al-qabr, that there will be punishment in the grave. There are some people that take issue with this. They say there is no punishment in the grave. They have no good reason to take issue. The amount of a hadith speak about punishment in the grave and certain verses in the Quran that indicates to punishment in the grave, you understand, are so profuse that they've reached the level of mutawatir. You understand? Mutawatir uh, is a thing, the authenticity of which cannot be denied. 
the authenticity of which cannot be denied. So it brings, it, it, uh, it casts a question on a person's iman if they are able to deny mutawatir, you understand? Uh, to deny mutawatir is the equivalent of denying the Quran. The same thing if a person died as a shaheed, a martyr on the battlefield. So again, I need to remind you, we're taking good omen, eh? uh, we do not know for a fact. There's a hadith with the Prophet of Allah says, on the day of Qiyamah, certain people will be brought in front of Allah. One of them will be a martyr. And Allah will ask this person, oh, why are you looking like that? You understand? And why did you do this? So he will say, well, Allah, I gave my life in your path. And then Allah will say to that person, no, that is not true. Uh, you gave your life so that it can be said that you are brave. And so it was said, so there's no, there's no reward for you by me. And the hadith is the person will be dragged on the snout and cast into yell. You understand? So it's a possibility that people that we look upon as martyrs, you understand it, unfortunately, on the day of Qiyamah, it will be discovered that the intention was not right. You understand? But uh, that is not our job as Muslims. The ulama say, we just based upon what is apparent to us, as for the true secrets, what is really the hidden conditions of people that we leave in the hands of Allah. So if a person died as a shaheed, a martyr on the battlefield, we have good hope that this person will go to Jannah. The message of Allah is said, the martyr has six distinctive features by Allah. Number one, he's forgiven when his blood first spills and he's allowed to gaze upon his abode in Jannah. So even before Qiyamat, he will already see where he's going. Number two is protected from the punishment of the grave. There is another evidence that is punishment in the grave, a totally different hadith. Number three, he's protected from the great fright. So in the footnote there, you see the great fright is in reference to verse 103 of Surah Ambiya, and it refers to the final blow of the horn, where everything on the dunya will die. You understand? So he will be protected from that. And then four, he will be adorned with the jewelry of Iman. And we can only imagine how beautiful such jewelry would, would be because there's nothing in existence that is more valuable than Iman. And then finally, or sorry, not finally, uh, number five, he will be married to a number of Hur'ain. Hur'ain, by the way, is a plural. Eh? The singular is Hawra, Aina. You understand? And it refers to heavenly damsels. And then if he will be allowed to intercede for 70 of his relatives, so he will be granted the gift of Shafa'ah. He will be granted the gift of Shafa'ah. You understand? So Allah will accept this Shafa'ah for 70 of his relatives, which will mean that his act of Shahada, if accepted by Allah, if done correctly, will be so great that it will take 71 people to Jannah. Him being the one, and then 70 other relatives of his. The hadith comes in Ibn Majah and Tirmidhi. They are your references. And then there's numerous other hadith. It's going to be too lengthy to give you all the details and all the evidences. So I will just be referring. So number five, the person died while on a military expedition, a ghazwa. The person died too due to plague. And ulama have included uh, COVID-19 uh, in that discussion. Number seven, he died due to an affliction of the stomach, such as uh, severe diarrhea. Number eight, he died due to drowning. Number nine, he died due to bowling collapse. Number 10, a woman who bled, due, bled to death due to excessive postpartum. So she gave birth, and then there was nifas, postnatal bleeding, but it was so excessive that it led to her death. You understand? So Allah will grant a Jannah for them. She is a martyr. Any person that died in a fire, any person that died due to pleurisy, in Arabic that's known as datul jann, 
and it involves an inflammation of the lining of the lungs. You understand? And uh, here COVID would come in over there as well, because it also involves inflammation and uh, to do with the lungs and such. Also death due to tuberculosis, TB, so that's known to all. Death during a robbery, death while defending yourself, death while defending your religion, death while guarding the believers, death while occupied in an act of obedience, such as fasting or giving charity, and death after admonishing a tyrant or a ruler. So that means that person is extremely brave because they knew that the ruler uh, would murder them uh, following that. So this brings us to discussion number five, which is necessary funeral uh, preparations. So it's necessary to complete the following funeral preparations as soon as possible after death has been confirmed by an experienced doctor. So this is in our age. And I said, unfortunately, uh, this proof has been given. You understand uh, that we cannot deny that some people have been buried alive. So I don't know of any Muslim that this ever happened to them. But what has happened with non-Muslims, there has been cases where they have, I think the right word is interned, interred or interned, uh, the grave, where they've opened up the grave and uh, they've opened the coffin. And inside of the coffin, they found scratch marks. You understand? Uh, in the coffin and sometimes with the nails of the deceased uh, attached to the scratch marks. You understand? So that's a clear sign that the person woke up in the, in the, in the, in the coffin you understand? And they were still alive. You understand? So this is, these are things that have happened uh, to non-Muslims and they've been able to confirm it. Is it a possibility that, that it was, uh, the person wasn't really alive? Uh, it was something to do with life in the Qabr, Barzakh? Those things are possibilities. You understand? We cannot totally deny that. Uh, but you don't reach for supernatural answers uh, if they are natural answers. You understand? Yes, we know there's always supernatural causes as well. You understand? But it's more probable that that person actually woke up uh, in the grave. You understand? So in order to, to avoid all of these things, if we can have an experienced doctor, and these days the country uh, has it as a law, have a look at that at the person and ensure that the person is dead. In Strand, in Strand, there was a Muslim male that while they were performing his ghusl, he set up. He set up. He was still alive. You understand? So uh, what if there was a delay and had the thing already happened? So those things are possibilities, you understand? So we need to be safe. This is definitely not something that you want uh, to happen to you, right? So the performance for the disease is far tithaya, a communal obligation. This is perhaps the reason why in Cape Town, they call Janaza Kifat. They call Janaza Kifat. Uh, Janaza is Janaza. Janaza is not Kifat. You understand? When it comes to obligations, there tends to be two types of obligations. Fardain, a personal obligation, like the performance of your five times daily salah. This is something that humans do. You cannot ask your son or daughter to perform fajr on your behalf. It's a personal obligation. Here, the focus is on the doer, the doer is you. But Fardkithaya, a communal obligation, the focus is not on the doer, the focus is on the act. So as long as somebody that is suitable in the eyes of Sharia performs the act, then the rest of the community, they don't need to do it. So it's fortified, it's a communal obligation. If somebody in the community does it, uh, it relieves the rest of the community of the duty. If however, nobody does it, nobody at all does it, then the entire community is sinning. You understand? So to wash the deceased, shroud the deceased, uh, read salatul janazah on the deceased and bury the deceased, that is fortified, yeah? 
a communal obligation, it must be done, done by some suitable members of the community. If it is not done by anyone and they are aware of it, then the entire community, they are sinning and they will be hisab, reckoning on the day of Qiyamah. Right? So uh, all of these things uh, is necessary for the deceased. There are certain exceptions, such as with the shaheed, with the martyr, where these funeral preparations are not done, with the exception that the person uh, is buried. The angels, they read Salatul Janazah on this person. The angels perform the ghusl, etc., etc. And also the person will appear on the day of Qiyamah with their wounds, with blood still oozing from their wounds. Uh, the, the, the look will be the look of blood, but the smell will be the smell of musk. The Prophet of Allah tells us in hadith. You understand? So it will be a mark of honor for the martyr to appear like that on the day of Qiyamah. Then also these things apply to both a Muslim and a Dhimmi. A Dhimmi is a non-Muslim citizen of a Muslim state. And I said the exception would be ghusl and salah, that we Muslims do not ghusl a Dhimmi, and we do not perform salah upon them, as those things are particular to the Muslims. The salah at the end of the day is a dua. We do not make dua for non-Muslims that have passed away. Allah has taught us in the Quran and in the Hadith that if a person dies as a kafir, all the good deeds are rendered not. It's rendered into zero, and there's zero chance that they will go to Jannah. So to make dua for them would be a waste of time. You understand? It is important that if you have relatives especially that are non-Muslims, you understand, that you make effort while they're alive that they come on Iman. Unfortunately, this thing is happening regularly. The effort to, 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 to assist relatives that are non-Muslim to become Muslim, that effort is not made. We are lax. But the moment they are dead, we want to make dua for them. You understand? That effort is an effort that should have happened while the people were alive. So I've said that janazah is four things. Number one is ghusl, where we wash the body of the deceased. Kafan, we shroud uh, the body. Salatul janazah, uh, which is a dua for the deceased. And then finally, dafan, burial uh, of the body of the deceased. Our rights attached to the estate of the deceased. Uh, I, I've mentioned this on my fingers. I said in the Hanafi Madhab it's four, in the Shafi Madhab it is five. Right? You'll be discussing it uh, and with a little bit more detail. So, number one, debts connected to specific items part of the estate. So, these debts are of utmost importance and should be catered for. So, what I mean by that is you don't need to pay it before the janazah. You just need to make sure that there's enough in the estate to cover it. You understand? Uh, if the estate can only cover these debts, then the janazah must not be paid from the estate of the deceased. The janazah, the other details of the janazah, the cost must then be paid to people, by people that would be have been responsible for the deceased financially, had the deceased been alive, like a son or a father. And uh, these things include items given in mortgage as a security, items that were purchased by way of lay-by. So the shop owner, for example, still has it, and you're busy paying it off, and also any unpaid zakah, uh, in the Shafi school. Number two, funeral expenses. And as it refers to all arrangements required by the deceased after death until he is buried. So it includes the washing of the deceased, the shrouding of the deceased, his conveyance to the masjid. So normally uh, we have to hire a special vehicle, you understand, uh, to transport the body. But uh, technically there's no problem uh, if you were to use a bucky that is suitable. You understand, and uh, it does not in any way cause dishonor to the deceased. You understand, or, or, or uh, would be something that would shake the body unnecessarily uh, and the like. You understand, but normally there's a special vehicle. Uh, today's time they call it a hearse, 
You understand? And, and that thing takes money. It, it costs money to hire it. So the deceased will have to pay for it. Then we have the performance of Salatul Janazah, and then again, transportation to the graveyard uh, in Burial. So the money for all of the above is to take, be taken from the estate of the deceased, with the exceptions of minor children and wives, because with minor children, their father must pay, and with wives, their husbands must pay. And here I just want to say that even if a husband talaked his wife, but he just gave her one talak or two talaks, so those talaks are what is known as raji'i, revocable. So if the husband, the wife dies during such an idda, you understand? She's still a wife from certain angles. So her husband will still have to pay. Even if he had divorced her, he will still have to pay. You understand? And he will still inherit from her. And if he is the one that is dying, then she will still inherit from him. And her talak, it was a talak of, uh, sorry, her idda, it was an idda of talak, that uh, idda will now revert to the idda of, of a widow whose husband has passed away. You understand? And uh, so any days that you already set for idda, those days will be rendered not. You understand? And from that point forward, she will have idda of a wife whose husband has passed away, which is four months and 10 days. And uh, Allah knows best. Any questions you have on those things, you can put it to Shamil and uh, we will answer it at the end, inshallah. Should the deceased be poor? in that his or her estate doesn't have sufficient funds to cover his funeral expenses, then the responsibility of his payment falls on those who would have been responsible for his maintenance or his nafaka had he been alive. I've discussed that, so we're just uh, reminding you. If they do not exist, meaning there's no relatives, you understand that then take the responsibility to pay for the janazah, then it will fall to the public treasury. So the term for that is Baitul Mal. So the Baitul Mal, the public treasury, is where the Muslim government keeps the funds of the Muslimin. You understand? So zakat is collected, it's put in the Baitul Mal until it is distributed to uh, the eight categories of recipients. You understand? And uh, also if somebody dies and they have absolutely no relatives, uh, then the estate, it will actually go to the public treasury and the public treasury will use it to look after the poor uh, and the like. Right? So if there are no relatives, it will fall to the public treasury. If there's no public treasury, like for example, in South Africa, there is a government, but it's not a Muslim government. You understand? And so there's no real public treasury. Then the responsibility will devolve on rich members of the society. And what we mean by rich is we don't mean extremely rich, like millionaires and billionaires. What we mean by Reba is just anybody that has money in excess of their own basic needs. You understand? In the eyes of Sharia, such people are considered rich. And since it's fortify our communal obligation, it will fall on the community now to ensure that these things are done and the necessary expenses are paid. So that's number two, you must pay for the janazah. And as I said, the funeral is four things, uh, washing the deceased, shrouding the deceased, reading Salatul Janazah, and burying the deceased. And then number three is any other debt. So these debts include those owed by humans and also that owed by Allah. So if a person made another, a of which is nudur, a vow, you understand, that he would give certain monies, and that money is owed, and he must, it must be taken from his estate. Same thing with kafarat, the rule of kafara, where a person has committed certain sins, and there's an expiation for those sins, and it's a monetary expiation, you understand, so that must be taken uh, from the estate. Uh, an example of this is uh, if somebody engages in sexual intercourse during the month of Ramadan, so uh, in, the, in the sequence, the first kafara is that they must set free a slave. You understand? If there's no slaves, etc., 
you understand they must fast two months consecutively so if this was the age where there were slaves then we would have had to take money from the estate to buy a slave and set that free that slave free and some people over focus on the fact that uh, islam did permit and allow slavery islam was born into an age of slavery you understand and the aim of islam was to remove slavery but gradually in fact the very thing we are speaking of is we are speaking of emancipation of a slave you understand that, that the money for the emancipation of a slave must be taken from the estate of a deceased so islam reduced the intake of slaves it increased uh, the emancipation the avenues that would emancipate slaves and in that way islam uh, brought its own in uh, to slavery right so uh, must pay for all debts debts owed to humans debts owed to allah right there's just one thing we need to know and that is the debts owed to allah if precedence in the sequence of fulfillment this is in the shafi school so the prophet alayhi clearly said duyunullahi wa daynullahi ahqqu bil wafa aw kama qala alayhi salatu wasalam the debts of allah have the have greater right to fulfillment so if we have money enough only to pay one kind of debt a debt owed to allah and a debt owed to to humans in the shafi madhab's understanding of the evidences such as this hadith we will have to pay the debt of allah right and one of the benefits for that is that if you pay the debt of allah the human that is owed money that human will be visiting your family and making noise and demanding that his debt will be fulfilled so in most cases to retain the honor of your family and the honor of the deceased you will pay that debt also so in in the final outcome then both debts will be paid but if you were to pay the debt of the human first so that human is now silenced so who will make a noise who will make a clamor you understand with regards to the debt of allah and so the answer is no one so the deceased will will have to suffer uh, with regards to that you understand so we have that benefit uh, as well if we pay the debts of the uh, of allah first and then number 4 would be bequests and bequests up to a third of the estate in a sense you cannot give more than a third ali ibn abi talib may allah be pleased with him in a race the messenger of allah said so yeah i just want to tell you certain sahaba you really find them narrating hadith so you really find a hadith by abu bakr al-anwa umar al-anwa ali ibn abi talib radhiallahu really when i said because they were busy uh, what matters of the state of the, of the muslim state what what governance uh, and the like you understand so we really come across a hadith and essentially something special when we come across a hadith by umar al-anwan al bakr al-anwan uthman al-anwan ali when i said we were the first four khulafa so he says the prophet as i said the prophet decrees the debts be paid before any bequest while you read in the quran the mention of the bequest uh, before the debt so in the quran allah first mentions wasiya then allah mentions dain and that sort of gives the impression that wasiya must be paid first you understand however the prophet alayhi said no debts must be paid first so for some reason or the other the prophet alayhi went against the sequence uh, of the quran so there must be some benefit to that sequence in the quran and then there must be some reason why the prophet went contrary to the to, to the sequence so uh, the ulama discuss in the jalas uh, the reason that sequence is mentioned like that, like, like that in the quran is that again with the debt somebody will be making a noise and somebody will be clamoring you understand so that it tends to be paid but with the wasiya it's possible for a person to not know that they are the, the beneficiary of a bequest so no noise is made so this is the reason why allah mentions the wasiya first in the quran you understand to show that it is important you understand it must be done 
when I said it mustn't be hidden away. And why the Prophet paid debts first? Because that is the more, uh, what do you call it, important thing uh, to be paid. <clears throat> then finally, there's inheritance. Now, I just want to point out something to you. It is not understood by many. Wasiya is number four, and inheritance is number five. So there's a hadith where the Prophet of Allah says that it is not possible for a Muslim to inherit from a kafir and from a kafir to inherit from a Muslim. You understand? So some confusion comes in over there. What is meant by inheritance? So let's say I, I'm a person that embraced Islam. My mother and father are non-Muslim. Maybe they're Christian. So when they die, then nothing that they leave behind have the right to take. Because the Prophet of Allah said, a Muslim may not inherit from a kafir, and a kafir may not inherit from, them, from a Muslim. So the reason I'm pointing out to the sequence over here, the sequence number four was here, and then number five is inheritance. Is I want you to know that wasiya and inheritance are two different things. So when the Prophet said that you may not inherit from a non-Muslim and a non-Muslim may not inherit from you, it does not apply in the Shafi understanding to wasiya. Right? So you got the right to make wasiya for your non-Muslim relative. Your father, your mother, uh, your brother, your sister, your son and your daughter. But it is not permissible to have it as more than a third of the entire estate. You may make wasiya to non-Muslim relatives and anybody else also uh, that is non-Muslim. Maybe while you were a non-Muslim, you engage in zina and it produced a child. So somebody is your natural child. They are not your legitimate Sharia child, but a person is your natural child. You understand that that person remains Christian, but you become Muslim. So when you die, you want to leave something for your son, you want to leave something for your daughter. So you got the full right to make wasiya for them. You understand? But it mustn't be more than a third. If, however, your non-Muslim relative dies, so here there's only two possibilities. Either there's testate succession, meaning the person died and left behind a will, or there's intestate succession. They died and they left behind no will. If they died and they left behind no will, then you as the Muslim relative is not allowed to take any of the estate. And the reason you're not allowed to take any of the estate, small or big, is because now it will be pure inheritance. Pure inheritance. And the Prophet clearly stated that the Muslim does not inherit from a kafir, a kafir does not inherit from a Muslim. If, however, your non-Muslim relative, like your father, puts your name in his will, and then he puts an amount, even if that amount is more than a third of his estate, even if it is entire estate, it is permissible for you to take it. Because that is not inheritance, that is wasiya. So I mentioned before, wasiya is a post-mortem gift. You understand? It is a gift that happens after your death. And here you must just ask yourself the simple question in order to understand that if you are alive and you give a non-Muslim a gift, is it permissible? Is it permissible for you to give a gift to a non-Muslim while both of you are alive? So the answer is yes. Is it permissible for a non-Muslim to give you a gift while both of you are alive? So the answer is also yes. So you, if it's permissible to give gifts while alive, it's permissible to give gifts when you are dead. You understand? There's no difference. So the wasiya is a gift. You understand? Yes, there are conditions to the wasiya. You may not give more than a third, and you may not give somebody that will already inherit from your estate. Right? But there's no condition that says that you may not give wasiya to a kafir, a disbeliever, and a disbeliever may not give wasiya to you. There's no such thing. So in the Shafi'i Madhab, you can put in your will that your non-Muslim relative can give this or that. It just must not be more than a third of the estate. And they can put in their will that you can get, even if they give the entire estate because they're not limited to a certain percentage, 
and uh, Allah knows best. Right, so that's the thing that is sometimes uh, misunderstood, even by students of Deen. Uh, right, oh, Shama? Okay, no problem. Right, uh, so Shamil has informed me uh, that we have about 12 questions. So I'm just going to continue for another five minutes or so uh, with the lesson, and then we'll have, we'll have a look at the questions. Right, so inheritance is number five. It's the last of the rights that pertain to the estate, and whatever properties and money now remain will be divided in accordance with the laws of Allah, as enumerated in the Quran and the Sunnah. Inheritance is primarily in the Quran, and then there's some uh, in the Sunnah. Uh, there are some related development regulations. I think, however, for the schools that we won't do it, uh, I think it does appear in the notes. So you can have a look at that and uh, Allah knows best. Right. Uh, uh, is this question of the photographs? Uh, is that part of tonight's schools? Uh, okay, right. On. So the first question here, Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim I've always had a photograph of my parents displayed. Now my father has passed on, is it wrong to display it? Uh, the first thing I need you to know is that to draw uh, pictures of animate beings in Islam is haram. And it has been mentioned in the hadith that the, the musawirun, the people who create forms, they will be the worst of people on the day of Qiyamah. You understand? And there are two reasons mentioned for this. Uh, one is that they are imitating the creative abilities of Allah. So the day of Qiyamah, Allah will say to them, ma khalaktum, give life to that which you have created. You understand? So it's considered a form of creation. And it's, it's considered a form of challenge uh, by Allah. That's one reason. The second reason ulama mentioned is that that is actually how shirk started. People made uh, busts and statues and drawings of pious people. And then eventually, uh, over generations, they started worshipping uh, those pious people. Uh, like many of the gods that, that were located in the Kaaba, you understand, and certain other places like uh, in, on the Mas'a, you understand, this is uh, Safa and Marwa, those gods were actually pious people, you understand, they passed on and then they, 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 they were worshipped. Now we come to the issue of photography. Is photography, does it have the same hukum as drawings? So your ulama is different, you understand? So some ulama are saying, no, it doesn't have the same ruling. Because all you are doing is you're exposing something that is light sensitive uh, to light, and then uh, uh, images formed. So you are not really creating the image. You understand? You're just allowing the image uh, to be formed. So that's one view. Other ulama say, no, it's the same thing. Uh, you have to click uh, the camera to actually create uh, the picture. So it's the same thing. Even those ulama that feel that taking photographs are haram, they do allow it like for passports and other necessary things uh, for educational reasons. Like you'll see me use, uh, I've used some photographs tonight, you understand, and uh, Allah knows best. Uh, beyond that, uh, another great fear of the ulama, especially the Shafi Madat, when it comes to uh, pictures of animate objects, is that it shouldn't be revered. You understand? So if it is used in a way where it is not revered, like, for example, we have a carpet, and on the carpet are drawings of animal objects, but people are walking over it. You understand? With their feet, and, and, and frequently the shoes are dirty, uh, then that is not a problem. You understand? And uh, so the problem uh, would be this, this reverence. Now, when people pass away, the element of reverence becomes greater. You understand? When people pass away. 
because now you think fondly back to them and uh, all the bad of them goes from the mind and you only think of the good. You understand, so it creates a certain reverence, especially if that person was a great alim or that person was a close relative. You understand, so, so, so it introduces uh, that element and uh, Allah knows best. Okay, no problem. And the next question, some people say in Ramadan that the deceased are free and roaming amongst us. Is this true? I've heard this numerous times. I've never found an authentic hadith on this. I never found an authentic hadith on this. And I just want to say beforehand that I don't believe in the concept of ghosts. I don't believe in the idea that souls are wandering about. So there's only two types of souls. There are those that are enjoying the delights uh, of the grave. And there's no good reason for them to leave the delights of the grave. They're, they're preoccupied with those delights. And then there are those that have been punished by angels. And it's inconceivable that Allah would allow those angels uh, or, or those angels would allow them to roam about the dunya. You understand that Allah knows best. So there's no such thing as ghosts, people, uh, souls roaming about. I've never seen any authentic ahadith on that. You understand? And uh, Allah knows best. If there's something in your house that is doing something to you, it is probably a demon, meaning an evil jinn. You understand? But it is not a deceased uh, human. Next question, how will you know all the deaths of the deceased? So that's the reason why you should have a will. So if you don't have a will, and in the world it doesn't mention the debts, who you owe, and uh, uh, who owes you, then it is not possible for other people to know all your debts. You understand? And so uh, the amana cannot be fulfilled correctly, but it will be no wrong uh, on the part of the executor. You understand? It won't be no wrong. And uh, Allah knows best. If a person makes a will that isn't according to Sharia, does the executive of the estate have any right to make changes to it? Uh, to, to make changes to it? According to Sharia, after the person has passed. Or should the executive just carry out what is in the will and will the executive be punished for this? If the executive goes ahead and executes a will that is not Sharia compliant, then the executor is assisted in the commission of a sin and there will be accountability on the day of Qiyamah. So if it is possible to rectify the will, the executor will do that. The problem that you're sitting with in, in, in South Africa is that if there is a will, the executor is obligated by the laws of this country that you must execute that particular will. You understand? So his only option would be to speak to all the heirs and have the heirs agree that the will be made Sharia compliant and they must sign documents uh, to, to, to that effect. If any single heir denies that and say they don't want that to happen, then the executor will have to resign his position as the executor. You understand? And somebody else will have to take it over. So normally in a the world, they don't just mention one executor. They mention like two or three executors and then they have a spare fourth executor also sometimes and uh, Allah knows best. Then the next question is, can debts include interest earned? Uh, it is not permissible for a Muslim to pay interest and it is not permissible for a Muslim to take interest. You understand? So if debt is owed to the estate, then you are only allowed to take the principal amount, the capital amount. You are not allowed to take the extra interest. Uh, the same thing with paying debts. If there's some way for you to escape uh, the interest on a debt, you understand, uh, then you will have to do that. If there's no way for you to escape it, uh, then given the circumstances, you have no option uh, but to pay it. You understand? And uh, over there, again, you can resign as the executive of the estate. 
but uh, that thing will be held against the estate and uh, uh, people will have the right to sue the estate uh, to get that. You understand? So the deceased shouldn't have done that in the first place. They shouldn't have entered into an interest-bearing debt. Uh, like, for example, people are doing it for houses. Uh, in the South African context, there's no good reason to do that. There are halal alternatives, such as renting is a halal alternative. It is not a necessity to own a house. It is a necessity to live in a house. So you can rent. You understand? That's number one. And then number two, uh, there are home loans that are Sharia compliant, such as Murabaha, uh, Cost Plus. So they buy the house for you and they charge you an extra. You understand? Uh, or for example, Musharaka uh, Mutanakisa, diminishing partnership. You understand? Uh, or even a 90% interest-free loan and uh, the bank uh, retains 10% uh, value in the house for which they charge your rental. There's numerous ways that uh, home loans and other loans are financed in a Sharia-compliant manner. Uh, you need to do some investigation and uh, Allah knows this. Question from Olena. Does dying with a smile on the face mean anything? So I've said before, we are the people of Tafa'ul. Uh, we are the people that take good omens. So if a person dies with a smile on their face, we take good omen. You understand? But you must understand that a good omen is not a guarantee of anything. We cannot say certainly the person goes to Jannah. We cannot tell Allah who are pious and who goes to Jannah. You understand? Allah tells us. You understand? Allah makes the final decision. The prerogative belongs to Allah. So just because a person died with a smile on the face, the onus is not on Allah to send them to Jannah. You understand? But you can expect that if a person died with a smile on the face, that as they were dying, they saw good things. You understand? So it makes sense that it must have been the angels of mercy that came to take that soul. You understand? And not the angels of punishment. If the angels of punishment came to take a soul, we do not expect the person to have a smile uh, on their face. And uh, Allah knows this. It's possible, however, that it could be due to something else. Like frequently when a baby smiles at you, all that is happening is the baby has a win. You understand? The baby isn't really smiling. You understand? So did the, the, the deceased person suffer a win just before they died? Allah knows best. There's many variables. We have no true knowledge. But we take tafa'ul. We take a good sign and we have good hope, inshallah. I would like to know if there's an etiquette to follow when you perform ziyara of the deceased after burial. Does one walk from the right side to the left side? That's the best time uh, to the right side at the time. Yeah, so those things are all coming in, in, in lessons in future, inshallah. So we'll have a look at that. If I don't mention it, uh, then you can just uh, resend the question. Right, another one. Do my du'as reach my deceased father? Does he know I am making du'a for him? Does this clearly mention in the hadith? When a person dies, all his deeds come to an end except for three. And then one of the three things that is mentioned in there uh, is uh, pious offspring that make dua for the deceased. So yes, uh, the dua does benefit the deceased. You understand? And uh, inshallah, the angels uh, are informing the deceased and uh, Allah knows best. If not in the qabr, then certainly on the day of Qiyamah and uh, Allah knows best. And eventually you will meet your deceased, you understand? And uh, you can tell them, and inshallah, you will come bearing gifts uh, of good deeds and to us. Number two, how can we protect ourselves in the dunya from the punishment of the grave when we die? The simple answer to that is to live a good life. You understand? Live a life of taqwa, of Allah consciousness. When we do as Allah commands, and we refrain from what Allah prohibits. But since we are weak, we will fall into sin, you understand eventually, even while we're fighting, we're fighting it, we will fall into sin. 
So then if we fall into sin, you understand, just do minor sins, not major sins. You understand? And uh, if you have fallen into a sin, even a major sin, make sure that you do toba as soon as possible. And the conditions of Tawbah in brief are three. And now we mentioned it in the Riyadh Salihin. He says, number one, you must stop committing the sin. You can't continue committing the sin and say that you've made Tawbah. Number three, you must regret that you had done it. And uh, number three, you must make firm intention not to return to it. This is if you have sinned against Allah. If you have sinned against a human being like you stole the car, so now he clearly says you will have to return the car. Uh, you cannot steal somebody's car and say that you made Tawbah, but the car is still in your garage. You understand? Hajj is not going to help you against those things. You go for Hajj, you visit the people, you, you, you sing the, the rhyme that they sing in Cape Town, that they ask you ma for anything I've done against you knowingly and unknowingly. Uh, that doesn't help against a car that's still in your garage that you stole from that person. You understand? The car must be returned to the individual. You don't need to inform the individual that you took the car, but the car must be returned to them. In the Shafi Madhab, there's an additional thing. If you stole a person's car, like let's say for 10 years, you understand? Then not only must the car be returned to that person, you must pay them a hiring fee for that period. You understand? So for that 10 year period, you will owe them a hiring fee. And uh, Allah knows best. This is clearly mentioned uh, in the Shafi Kitab, At-Takrirat As-Sadida, Volume 2, Qismul Mu'amalat, Al-Buyu wal Mawarith. And uh, Allah knows best. I will be able to calculate my debt and pay zakah if I do not know his finances. Again, that is the reason why we are telling people to have wills. You understand? So people must indicate they haven't paid this zakah, haven't paid that zakah. You understand? If they do not indicate, and then the executive of the state cannot know, other people cannot know. You understand? And uh, Allah knows best. But sometimes you can know. Like, for example, uh, if your father has been in a coma or something like that for a year. So then you can guess that there's zakah for that year. You understand? And then zakah can be, should be paid. So that's an easy one for you to know. You understand? But sometimes you cannot know. How soon after the death of a person should the inheritance be distributed? Is one allowed to delay due to a specific reason? Uh, it's not an issue of a specific reason. It's an issue of an allowed reason. You understand? If you have a valid reason, a Sharia-compliant reason for delaying the inheritance, that is fine. You understand? So uh, it can't just be any reason. You understand? It must be a good enough reason. So uh, when a person dies, uh, with the exception of debts and wasiyas and paying for the janaza, uh, that now belongs to that person's heirs. So the property of owners must be given to them as soon as possible, inshallah. Right? If there's a valid reason for delay, that is to be understood. But we will have to look at every reason uh, to see the merit. How soon? Are, okay. Another question is, uh, if I was born out of wedlock of my parents, but I married later when I was a baby, am I allowed to inherit from my parents when they pass on? Right? Oh? So the first thing is your mother. Uh, whether you're born out of wedlock or not, you understand? You are always the child of your mother. You understand? So with regards to your mother, you are legitimate. You understand? So automatically, you will always inherit from your mother and your mother will inherit from you if you pass on. The golden question is, who is your father? So if you're illegitimate, this is why we use the statement, waladu zina. Waladu zina is mudaf mudaf ilayhi. So waladu zina actually means the offspring of zina. So the person doesn't have a father. The person is the offspring of zina. However, the ulama, even if there's signs of pregnancy, 
before a couple marries. If they marry and the child is born six months or later from the date of marriage, then that child will be considered legitimate. So this is the ulama giving the child the benefit of the doubt. Because minimum pregnancy in Sharia law is six months. So there's an ayah in the Quran where Allah speaks of uh, breastfeeding and Allah speaks of pregnancy. When I say that Allah speaks of, uh, what is it now? Um, of 30 months, right? And then elsewhere in the Quran, Allah says that breastfeeding is uh, two years. So two years is, is 24 months. So if we minus 24 months from 30, then it will mean that pregnancy is six months. So minimum pregnancy in Sharia law uh, is six months, right? And this will apply even if you took the modern pregnancy test, where it is highly unlikely that you are not pregnant. Because the modern pregnancy test, uh, I think is a, is a success rate of 98%. Because it detects a certain hormone that is only in the body of a pregnant woman. So even in that particular case, she took the pregnancy test and the pregnancy test said that she's pregnant. If she marries the, the natural father of the child, and the child is born six months or uh, what is it now or later from the date of the marriage, we will give the child the benefit of the doubt. The child will be considered legitimate. So that particular child can inherit from his father. You understand, and the father can inherit from that child. If the child is born before six months or ever, that child is considered illegitimate, and that illegitimacy only applies to the father, not to the mother. So that child cannot inherit from the father. The father cannot inherit from the child. However, we did mention wasia. So wasia is a thing that can be given to anyone. So the natural father can still give his child, that is waladuzina, can still give their child wasia, and it mustn't be more than a third. And frequently, if a person has inherited, uh, had gotten money by inheritance, the share would have actually been less. So wasia can actually allow you to get more. Uh, what's the problem, Shaman? Is my time up? Okay, one more question, Samuel says, we have time for. If the deceased was in hospital because of COVID and died and was too weak to perform or do in Salah, must the Salah be performed by one of his sons uh, after burial? Uh, I do not know of where it is allowed for other people uh, to perform Salah for somebody. You understand? I can do some research on that and come back to you, but I don't know of such a thing because Salah, as I said, is fardain, it is a personal obligation. And generally, there's almost no condition where a person is too weak to perform salah. You understand? A person could be too weak to do the positions of salah. You understand? But a person isn't too weak to perform salah. You understand? So in whatever condition they find themselves, uh, if there isn't somebody to assist them with wudu, they should make salah without wudu. You understand? If there isn't somebody that can assist them to face the Qibla, they must make salah not facing the Qibla. If they aren't able to do the positions, you understand, salah must still be made. Only when there isn't mental consciousness, like a person is in coma, you understand, then there's an argument now, salah couldn't be made. You understand, but you're always able to make salah, even if you're covered in najasa, you understand, and uh, you're not able to clean yourself for whatever reason. You understand, you will make salah as you are able uh, to make salah. So every sharp, every prerequisite of salah falls away if you're unable. Every rukun of salah, every integral of salah falls away if you're unable. So siha validity of acts of worship is based upon uh, shurut and arkan, prerequisites and integrals. But every integral, if you're unable, it falls away. La yukallifullahu nafsan illa us'aha. Allah does not burden a soul beyond its capacity. A good example of this is when you're going for hajj. 
say on the aeroplane, sometimes for Fajr. We see numerous hujads, they don't perform Fajr. Why don't they perform Fajr? They say they're not able to do the positions of Salah. They say they're not able to face the Qibla. You understand? Some say they're not able to take wudu. You understand? Uh, some of those things aren't the truth. Some of those things you can do. Like you can actually perform wudu in an aeroplane toilet. You understand? It's possible. You understand? I've done it. You understand? And Allah knows best. And uh, beyond that, uh, you will perform salah in any way that you can. If the plane crashes and you die, you have done what you are able to do. And Allah doesn't demand from you beyond what you are able to do. If the plane doesn't crash and you land, then you perform qadraf that fajr salah again. Because not all the arkan were there. You understand? But you must do what you are able to do and Allah knows best. Unfortunately, my time is up. So I'm going okay. to end, inshallah. Uh, we will continue next week. Uh, all the khair and barakah. I hope that you were able to benefit uh, from the lesson and you have a better understanding uh, of these matters. Uh, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Shukran very much, Mawlana, for that beautiful session. Alhamdulillah. Uh, shukran everybody for the questions as well. And those that we couldn't address this week, we will definitely address next week, inshallah. Once again, have a good evening and a good week. We'll see you next week. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.